0: Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth.
1: All right. So I have this reputation. You probably picked up on it already that I was homeschooled. That's okay. Um... Like, some people are cheering, there's some, like, public school kids in the back that want to throw me in a locker, (laughs) haha, no lockers here, joke's on you. No, I did get bullied a lot as a kid, my sister was relentless, but it's not about me right now, it's not about me right now. But in all honesty, like, I have the reputation, like, on our staff team of being, like, the the staff member that's most cringy, which I don't know if that's saying a lot or not, because there's, like, two of us on our local campus staff team, so it's like, okay, I'm, like, more cringy than one other person, but... I think it really all started when people began to come to me for prayer about finals and midterm and homework, and after about eight years in campus ministry, I just started praying very honest prayers, and then if you were a, i almost said freshman, if you're a first year or freshman, um, and you came into my office to pray with me, you'd probably only do so one time if it was about those areas of midterms and stress, because my prayers are really honest, and I've been told are cringy, okay? And hey, I understand test anxiety. I have an anxiety disorder. Like, I, I'm, like I, I'm with you. But I'm also like, I want to have honest prayers, okay? So let's just imagine that I'm leading a core group this semester, which I am. And let's just imagine that there's this guy in my core group named Caleb. That's his real name. Um, people are responsible for their actions. Um, and he was like, one time he made the mistake of saying... Hey, I got this homework. I got this test, this final. But he's like explaining it to me like that's not a normative thing in the life of a college student. He's like, "Oh, I'm so stressed. I got this thing." I'm like, "What is this you speak of? This thing you pay for and hoped for and now complain about? What is this thing?" Oh yes, your undergraduate career. And you see where this is going. You already get the cringy vibes. So he comes to me. He's like, "Would you just pray that I do well on the test, the exam, the midterm, the final?" I don't. I don't even remember. And I was like, sure, let's pray. So I'm just going to tell you what I prayed. If some of you just like in the front row, close your eyes. Just, I'm just talking about prayer. We're not praying yet. I know you're hungry for the Lord, but I'm just telling you a story. We're not really praying. So I was like, Lord, I pray you'd bless this student, but I pray that you would not leverage the Holy Spirit and the revelations of the Spirit to help this student cheat. Lord, I pray that they would remember everything that they studied and not one thing more. God, I pray you'd give Caleb courage in the moment of decision to choose to study for this class that he's in debt for instead of doing Netflix, HBO Max, and Hulu. God, I pray he'd live an integrated life, that he would not try to leverage my connection with my boss, which is you, to help him on this grade, which is his responsibility. Bless our life group tonight, amen. Exactly, he didn't clap. And then the rest of our staff team, i.e. Natalie, got really busy with prayer appointments because everyone wanted to pray with her and not me. And I don't understand why. I'm just being honest before the Lord. When I think of cringy moments, I also think of one of my favorite stories in the New Testament in the Gospels. And we're not going to read it, but I'm going to talk about it just for a moment. And maybe you're familiar with this story and maybe you're not, but that's okay. The disciples, the friends, the pupils of Jesus, they are in a ministry context— they're sharing the gospel. They're preaching about the good news of the kingdom of God. And people are unresponsive. And then they have this grand idea. And they literally say this it's in the text that they are like, How about Jesus? We call down fire from heaven and just kind of like scorch this place. To which I'm sure Jesus is like, Are these the people I'm trusting with the message of the gospel? Like, they went really quick for, like, we care for this community, to let's turn prayer into a superpower and destroy them. Like, I know now in a modern-day context, no one would ever weaponize religion for their own gain. I know that's crazy to think about. That was a joke. People do it all the time. Um, and, and yet they were, like, it was so cringy. They went from how do we minister to people didn't respond well. Maybe we could, you know, call down fire, like, I don't know how God gets to glory, but that must have been a really rough core group that that was their response. They're like, man, we used to love these people, but let's talk about God's wrath right now, and let's show them. What's interesting about cringy moments, whether you're me, and pretty much my whole life and aesthetic is cringy, or whether you're disciples, and there's moments where they miss it. I think of, oh my gosh, Simon Peter, right? Do you guys know that? Do you all know that story? It's, it's like... It's at the end of the life and ministry of Jesus, and Jesus is, is like washing their feet, which is at this crazy cross-cultural, scandalous moment when he steps into the role of like suffering servant, imaging Isaiah, and he wants to wash their feet, and Simon Peter's like, no. Do y'all know this story? It's, 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 I'll, I'll share it. It's okay. And, and then, I mean, how do you say no to Jesus? I don't know. Simon Peter does. He's like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And then Jesus says, like, no, basically, I really am, and I really want to. I need to model this. And then Simon Peter's like, well, why don't you wash my whole body then? And Jesus is like, too far. No, hard pass on that. No, just just stick with the feet. Like, he just keeps trying to get it, and he misses just a little bit. It reminds me, and this is probably when most of y'all were, like, three years old, but for, like, a two-week period in American pop culture, it was really popular in terms of fashion to not wear one polo shirt, but to wear two. Yeah, I know. So as you can imagine, I wore three. Those things are thick. You know what I'm saying? Three of them, but for for two weeks, I was like the coolest kid in my youth group and at my school, and I was homeschooled, and it wasn't that hard. I think, though, all of us have the opportunity this weekend to see something amazing happen in our lives or to unintentionally do something cringy. When I step into retreat weekends and retreat spaces, whether I'm a student or a staff, the cringy mistake that I'm often prone to make is that I would only seek God's hand and I wouldn't seek his face. That I'd come in this space with a list of I wants and I needs and I'd forget that the greatest need I have is for him that in all my questions and doubts and deconstruction and reconstruction, that in every single concern I have about the trajectory of Christianity and Jesus and the Spirit working in my life, that I could forget and miss that Jesus is the answer. That Jesus is the perfect theology in body. We see that in Hebrews. We see that in Colossians. I was sharing the gospel with a family member of mine. And don't worry, I'm not always that missional. It was just a Christmas gift turned into a book club. And I'm really not that intentional with my family at times, to be honest. There was just this book exchange to give you a backdrop at Christmas. And in the book exchange rules were no theological books or commentaries. And I'm like, that seems pretty pointed. Like, some of the people in the group chat are Wiccans, and I'm the pastor. I think that's really aimed at me. So then I got them this book, How Not to Read the Bible, which is a great book that we use on campus. And I shared it with them as kind of a joke because it's like how not to read the Bible. It's not like I didn't break the rules because I'm a rule follower, but I did break the rules and had a gospel on with my family. But then it turned into an accidental book club with like seven people who were reading the book. And I was texting one of my relatives who does not know Jesus yet. And they were like, the Bible is so hard to understand. And I was like, amen. And they're like, the Bible is so complex and tricky at times. I was like, keep on preaching. And then the person said over text, but like, couldn't have God just made it easier by sending someone or something to just tell us what he really meant. And I was like, I'm really not trying to do like a Jesus juke here, but he did do that. And it is Jesus. And he is the perfect theology embodied. And the conversation led to more kind of sowing of seeds. And I'm trusting God to, to bring those so that that person, that family member of mine could know Jesus the way I know Jesus. But it reminded me as they were asking their questions, or students on our campuses ask difficult questions, I both want to create a space where people find permission to ask questions, but that they get to meet the answer themselves, who is Jesus. They get to encounter something. Because I learned long ago that if someone can be argued into the kingdom, someone smarter than me could probably argue them out of the kingdom. If I could convince someone by logic alone, not only would I be trying to minister outside of the way we see Jesus ministering, but also being relying on myself. And the passage that reminds me the most on what it means to pursue people and invite people into a community that's full of life is found in the book of Acts. We're going to be reading this passage throughout uh, our time together this evening. Our kind of theme is R-E or re. We'll have four different words that we look through in each of the four sessions. We're in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And sincere hearts praising God, verse forty-seven, and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I feel like we're having fun, we're laughing. You're getting used to what my core group guys call as Blaine Young energy, which they kind of always frown when they say it. So I'm still praying through that with my therapist. She's great though. But I want to, if you're, if you're able, why don't you stand with me with Bible in your hand. We're going to do a little exercise. And if this fails miserably, I'll just pretend it was Blair's idea. So we just read Acts 2, 42 through 47. So it'll help you if you have your Bibles, but I just want to provide a quick summary thematically of this incredible community that we see. In verse 43... Everyone was filled with awe because of signs and wonders. In 44, believers were together and had everything in common. kind of speaks to a commonality, a common story. In 45, there was this sharing of physical items. I love this verse. It's like light socialism without the bad stuff. I'm here for it. Verse 45, 46 says, They continued to meet together. They had this habit, this rhythm of togetherness. They shared meals together regularly. Verse 47, they enjoyed the favor of all people and God. So here's what I want to do for this exercise is, and then also 42, um, we'll get to that in a minute, but 43 through 47, I want you with your Bibles to take a few moments and in the room, find other people like you who look at this community and would highlight one of those verses, one of those themes as the thing that's most attractive to you about the community, the thing that resonates with you the most. So 43, signs and wonders. 44 was common story or camaraderie. 45 is there's this sharing, this generosity. 46, there's this meeting and eating. If I were in this activity, clearly that's where I would go. And in verse 47, they're experiencing the favor of all people and God. So you're going to kind of try to find other people in the room who would identify with the same theme from the verse with you. And then I want to see I want, I want to see you' all to see kind of who resonates with what. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, you can just lie to me and figure it out with your neighbor. All right, go for it now. Yes. Second row's already doing it. I love it. What's incredible about this community, one of the first Christian communities as we know it, all of those elements that we individually responded to were at work. We're being expressed. A principle that we can learn for that is although that we might naturally gravitate towards one aspect of Christ-centered community, other people that we might be trying to engage with the gospel might connect in with something else. In other words, it's helpful to know your own discipleship story, but not only to disciple according to your story. Here's what happened. I was trying to lead a life group at Georgetown, and no lie, I have responded well in my own spiritual formation to leaders that were a little bit more directive, a little bit more authoritarian, a little bit more advice heavy, and then I started to do that, and as you can imagine, my life group full of Gen Zers was none, and then I realized that what worked for me may not work for them. I actually wasn't doing it because I thought that was the only way to be a leader. I was doing what was so helpful for me because I cared for them, and I wanted them to experience growth. And I thought there was only one path to it. But then I realized I need to do what Jesus did so well, as meet people where they are at. I need to be like Paul, who's willing to be all things to all people. And so I changed my tactic. My message and my heart stayed the same, but I realized that I couldn't just disciple according to what would reach Blaine. Blaine's already reached. I need to disciple according to what my campus needs. And funny enough, I switched gears, and now my my core group, my life group, has like 11 people in it, which to go from zero to 11, that's like miniature revival in D.C., okay? I love this story. I love this I love this photograph that we're getting of the early church because it shows how dynamic a community in love with God and in love with each other can be. For so many years, I would memorize these kind of pop apologetics arguments, basically just ways to trick non-Christians into logically becoming Christians. And then I realized that no one in my family, in my community, in my church had come to Christ that way. The majority of people come to Jesus because they see other people living like Jesus. I know this may shock you, but most people in Archiapha don't come to Archiapha to hear me speak. I know, shocker. They come because they've been loved by someone who's loved by God. They come because they've been pursued by someone who's been pursued by the Father. They see a community where goodness and mercy has followed them, and they say, can I be a part of it? It's why in the Gospel of John, we find out that the greatest apologetic is our love for one another. That's how they will know. Those who aren't yet in the room will know whose we are by how we love one another, those in the room. Absolutely, compassion is key to a gospel witness and a kingdom ethic, but John is making the point in his gospel That it's not actually compassion that will attract people into the community, it's the community's attractiveness itself that will draw people in. I was speaking to my core group the other day and I said, it's important for us to live differently so that we don't just invite people into the same life experience with more rules. Like, if we're gonna be stressed when the rest of campus is stressed, if we're gonna tie our identity to our achievement, if we're gonna do everything else and then also add don't do this and don't do that, we shouldn't be surprised why people aren't breaking down the doors to join our core group. But we are given the opportunity to live an abundant life and invite others into it. But we have to be presenting an alternative that's attractive, that's enticing, that's invitational. And I want to be careful here. I'm not advocating for like an attractional model of ministry or saying that your Instagram needs to look perfect. What I am saying is that the relationships that you have at your campus, in your classes, in your dorms, that the relationships themselves can be signposts to God. In other words, people will often need to be one to you before they're one to Jesus. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes I'm guilty of stopping at that first step. Winning people to me and not allowing them to be one to the Lord. One of my biggest regrets in ministry is over a few year period at American University, one of the campuses I serve, I decided to be the unofficial chaplain or pastor at the DAV, which is our coffee shop. I mean, it's kind of self-serving assignment because I love coffee, so I (laughs) mean— I'm not like on the cover of Voice of the Martyrs or anything, okay? Like, I signed up because I really wanted coffee and I wanted to be a pastor to people that didn't know they needed a pastor. So I'd go every day at the same time. I start to learn the baristas' names, I start to get involved in their life. And I had to do a lot of work because you don't start from zero. We never live in a vacuum. Like, they brought their own baggage, right? Like, they brought their own preconceptions. About what a pastor was, what the church is, what Christianity means, and after a few years, they begin to open up to me about their stories and their struggles and their reality, and they stopped wondering why I was like thirty something and kept hanging out on campus. Like I addressed that, and probably about two years in, they realize I'm not leading a fraternity called Chi Alpha; um, it's something else. And yet, once that class of baristas graduated, I realized that although I had won them to me, I hadn't won them to Jesus, which means I had failed. They saw me as a trusted person on campus. They didn't assume that I was a bigot or a racist because of my faith, tradition, and alignment. They thought I was cool, believe it or not, even without the three polos. And yet it didn't really matter because they graduated having a weird friend named Blaine and they didn't graduate any closer to King Jesus. I made the mistake of not bringing up Jesus early and bringing up Jesus often. I did the relational work of meeting them where they're at, but I didn't go the next step in helping them encounter Jesus. And so when they graduated or they dealt with death and tragedy, knowing me wasn't enough. Community is a powerful, a powerful gift that we get. And it's possible to try to follow Jesus on our own without community. I mean, you're here, so I assume you're not doing that, which is good because there's not really a biblical framework for that. And yet sometimes some of us can think community is so good that we make community our Lord and Savior. And then the community, understandably, will let us down. People will disappoint us. Leaders will accidentally offend us. Someone will, brokenness will rub off on you in the wrong way. Someone will experience tragedy beyond expectation. And community will never be a replacement for Jesus himself. It's not strong enough, it's not firm enough, it's not long-lasting enough. And for many of you, your time in this community is limited. And that's not like a secret, right? It's a campus ministry context. So if you guys look so scared, you're like, what? But by design, there should be some urgency so that we would enjoy community, but that the community would point us closer to Jesus. I had a roommate who was a part of our Chi Alpha in college. I went to the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. And you have to say that like contractually or donate to the school every time you bring it up. It's weird. After college, he spent six years church hopping and then finally gave up. And I was like, what happened? And he's like, well, I was just looking for something exactly like Chi Alpha. And I never found it. My heart was broken because I was like, oh, yeah, that's not the goal. And design is not for you simply to fall in love with Chi Alpha, but to fall in love with Jesus. And to recognize that Christian community after college is going to look a little different. And that's okay. That's actually by design. You'll get to experience multi-generational discipleship in new ways. But my friend, my roommate, Josh, he was like, but I wanted to be in a place where everybody was in the same location, cheered for the same team, all in the same stage of life. And I was like, you described something that was good, but not something that is permanent. Just like I made the mistake of being a little bit short-sighted with my self-assignment of being the pastor at the Dab, and I can't undo that, I want you to have a long view of what your life with Jesus could look like. That this would not be the highlight of it this weekend, but it'd be a key marker that propels you into closeness with the Father. All of us want the community. Even students at American and Georgetown would want this community that's described in Acts 2. No one in their right mind, if answering honestly, would see this on a poster and be like, nope, not for me. Too generous. Too kind. Too too loving. Not for me. And yet, communities like we read about in verses 43 through 47 are not found, they are made. And they are made by being obedient to verse 42. In other words, we can't live in a verse 43 through 47 reality by skipping over the part that we play in verse 42. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, whether the breaking of bread in this instance is talking about communion or pizza, we don't fully know. But I do love that it's saying there has to be devotion in order for community to function beautifully. And if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, is that devotion can be defined as discipline plus delight. Discipline and delight. I wasn't asked to say this, but I I, I just got to say it to be honest with the text. Luke, who writes Acts, doesn't say they devoted themselves to the teaching of Jesus, or they devoted themselves to the red letters in the Bible, to the apostles' teaching. A lot of my students, and I say this to their face, so I don't mind saying it behind their back, are in love with the idea of the kingdom until it becomes localized. Like, they're down for John Mark Comer, practicing the way, even my Dallas Willard quotes and N.T. Wright. But when I remind them that unity that that Paul calls for in Scripture is localized, that the kingdom of God functions in local outposts with human imperfect leaders, when the idealism fades, the participation drops. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, I'm not going to sit on this fancy stool and try to convince you that, like, Pete or Zach or Blair are apostles, okay? Okay. That would take a weird turn at this retreat. But I do want to say that according to the text, you have to be devoted to your local leader's teaching. But catch that. It's not celebrity pastor culture, because it doesn't say be devoted to their brand or be devoted to them. It says to their teaching. They're teaching about Jesus, but it always has to be expressed. And I think, because students ask me all the time, well, why does it have to be that way? And I think our appreciation grows for the perfect king, the perfect leader, the more we spend time around imperfect leaders. My appreciation grows for the faithfulness of Jesus when I recognize my own fickleness and the fickleness of those around me. Now, it's not saying that you should be devoted in a way that would be unhealthy, to toxic or abusive leadership but it is saying that our devotion to earthly leaders and their teaching about Jesus is the way in which we set the table to live into the rest of this reality fellowship there's not usually a lot of arguments on that one breaking of bread we have disagreements at times over communion but hey let's take it we're in and then prayer the last one Everyone's least favorite spiritual discipline, if we're being honest, right? Maybe it's just me. That's okay. That was awkward. I just put that out there and no one agreed. It's like, oh, they devoted themselves to teaching. Yes, I like teaching and podcasts and sermons. To fellowship. That sounds fun. Xbox, anyone? To the breaking of bread. And to prayer. And yet, prayer allows us to experience more of those thin spaces that Pete was talking about. I got to be candid like Jesus prayed more than I would have expected him to. Jesus was always before and after miracles, before and after ministry moments. He was taking these retreats of prayer. In seasons of joy and in seasons of difficulty. That's why his brother James kind of has this amazing set of verses. It's like if you're sick, pray. If you're suffering, pray. If you're having a great day, pray. That was like the passion translation, sorry. Uh, If you're like engaged in anything in life, the believer's response is prayer. And I love that when we think about it correctly, it's not an obligation, but an opportunity. It's not something to be done out of guilt, but it's a gift to us. I'm a recovering perfectionist. I'm a type A person. And so I really wish that my job was verse 47, adding to the number those who were being saved. Like, I love being the center of attention and the hero of the story. I know, I know you're not supposed to say those things, but we all think those things, even the introverts. I know. I have prayed about this. I know what you think. No, that's not how prayer works. And yet, I'm supposed to invest in the input and trust God with the outcome. I think many of us, we, we have an idealized picture of community and we're not willing to invest or sacrifice for it and then we don't find ourselves walking into it and we wonder what's wrong. I love how Bonhoeffer and Life Together reminds us that an idealized view of community can sometimes keep us from experiencing true, authentic, messy community. Though what I wish I had could keep me from rights in, what's right in front of me. I think all of us are looking for something more than another day scrolling through Instagram or TikTok after hour five. St. Ignatius of Loyola talks about sin being disordered attachments. And I think about social media so often even in my own campus community and in my own life because I think the desire to be famous or to be known and loved and retweeted or re I don't know, I haven't talked to Elon in a while, I don't know what that is, is innately good and God-given, but expressed improperly and poorly. My son, he's eight. The other day I asked him what he wanted to do. He's kind of vacillated between like, I want to be a Chi Alpha director, and I want to be a librarian. That's what my wife does. And so I'm like, that's kind of cool. You kind of have some options, you know? Um... I was like, do you want to go to American or Georgetown or maybe even like UVA? And he was like, I would like to go to Edinburgh. I was like, in Scotland? He's like, in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I was like, that is so specific. But sure, sounds good. But I was like, what do you want to do with your life? He's like, I want to be famous. And I was like, for for what, dude? And he's like, just to be like famous, like on YouTube. And I was like, well, back in my day... You had to be famous for something, not just fame itself. It's this desire to be known and loved that's disordered, and then expressed. And I think social media is so compelling and addicting to me because it gives me a taste of community without the work of community. It gives me the image of of being around people without having to leave my bed. It lets me see and have a feeling like I could have that if I only tried, but then I don't try. It's like Charles Lee says, he, he runs an ideation company in his book, Good Idea, Now What? He says, sometimes we talk about something so much or we consume something so much that we convinced ourselves that we've done anything. We talk about community so much. We talk about being with Jesus so much that we haven't actually been communal or been with Jesus It's kind of like me in the gym. Like I paid for a gym membership, and then the next time I went to the gym was when I had to pay to renew a year later. And I know what you're going to ask, like, why didn't I pay online? So I want to describe something to you. Sometimes you have to go in a business, and you have to hand them something, and it's called cash. It's it's currency. And Imagine Bitcoin for a moment, but that it's actually printed. And so I had to give them that. I just wanted to contextualize it. Because I know you guys were like, checkbooks, cash, what? In, he had to go inside? But I also love how like, the person wanted to call me out at the front desk. They're like, we haven't seen you in a while, sir. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know what to say. Like, they're like checking my record. They're like, oh, I didn't even know you were still a member. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be next year after that comment, Susie. Hope you find the campus ministry not the one I lead. I didn't say that, I only thought that, but it was still sinful, okay? Still hold me accountable. The goal of tonight is to refocus, to allow Scripture to inform what community is, so that your experience doesn't become the bar of community, or your, your hurt you've experienced in community doesn't weigh you down. Henry Nouwen, my favorite author, says this, that if you have hurt caused in community, it has to be healed in community. It cannot be healed in isolation. Now, it doesn't mean you go back to the community that hurt you and are like, hey, heal me. That, that would probably be unhealthy. But that wounds that happen because of others have to find healing in positive relationships with others. I'm sure you have a great taste of community in your Chi Alpha in your core group, in your Chi Alpha house, wherever you live. And yet, I need to be reminded, and I think maybe you could be reminded too, that God has more in terms of defining community than we could imagine. It's not just fellowship, it's more. It's not just signs and wonders, it's more. It's not just selling everything and giving to those in need, it's more. It's not just meeting together every day, it's more. It's not just being together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God, it's more. It's not just enjoying the favor of God and all people, it's more. It's not just growth, it's more. It's all of those things. I tell my core group all the time, I think that materialism is so attractive because it answers our call for more in an inappropriate way. That the more that you sense, the more that you desire, that's God-given. He wants you to hunger, to, to, to yearn, but for the right things in the right way. And materialism is like that inverse, right? Because instead of saying, hey, what can I give, it says, what can I get? One of our alums, she really, when she was a student, kind of mentored me, even though I was her director, She said this, her name is Candace. She said, it's the hungry kids in the kingdom of God that get fed. It's the hungry kids. In a culture where desperation and neediness is looked down upon, those are some of the highest values in the kingdom of God. For me, following Jesus has been somewhat complicated lately because I'm faced with this question of how do I teach and train and help form students to hope in Jesus if I'm not willing to trust him again in some areas where I feel like he might have let me down. Like, am I willing to be disappointed? In other words, I think sometimes I protect Jesus' reputation in my own mind from myself. It's someone with an anxiety disorder, someone who's had two back surgeries before the age of 30. Anytime at my church, they're like, hey, we'd like to pray for people that have anxiety. I'm like, oh, no. Mm -mm." Maybe y'all are more spiritual than me, but I'm like, nope, I do not want to. Nope. Do not want to go to that rando volunteer person who might say something awkward. Like that pastor that one time was like, well, you're dealing with anxiety and depression. Did you do your devos today? And I was like, "Uh, yes, sir. I did do my devos in the subtext was it didn't necessarily address the chemical imbalance, but I didn't say that at the time. I wasn't woke yet, but I wanted to say it. When they're like, man, we feel like someone has an injury in their back and we want to pray for them. I'm like, my back is always feeling bad. So I'm like, I'm like a walking around about to be a prayer request. Some of my students come to church with me. So I'm sure they're always like, why is Blaine always at the altar? Like, is our director really a Christian? Like, he keeps responding. And in a, such an image-conscious place as D.C., it's like an extra step of, like, letting the flesh die. Because I want to be seen like as a successful Chi Alpha director that the church supports, not like the needy person that always has back and brain malfunctions that was homeschooled on top of it. I mean, come on. that's 0 for 3. I've got a testimony, y'all. I come to the altar because it's the place where certain things can die so that other things can live. All of us want a resurrection story, but few of us are wanting to see anything die. I take that walk, I take that walk most Sundays. I'm not perfect. But most Sundays I take that walk, even when they don't mention something I'm struggling with, because I want to risk it again for Jesus. I don't want to be content managing something that He might want to heal. And I'm saying that as the guy that has a therapist, has a physical therapist, has a surgeon on speed dial. I'm taking meds, but I also believe in anointing and prayer and fasting. And I'm caught in this place where I feel like in this season, Jesus is asking me, would you be willing to trust me again? Maybe you're here and you can relate to that. Maybe you're you're being asked to trust Jesus for the first time, but I think most of us probably have areas of our life where we not only are uncomfortable with Jesus being Lord, we're not willing to ask him to save. Because we've prayed the prayer. And I get it, I've been there. Like the amount of times I've responded to the altar call and then walked away seemingly unchanged is frustrating. And yet I believe that God's redemptive power is somehow forming me in those processes. And I think I would rather risk disappointment and let God explain it later than not ask for a prayer that he was waiting to answer. And I, I share that because it's like real and, and honestly I didn't necessarily want to share that with um, you guys look kind but like you're student strangers, you know what I mean? I mean some of you are probably going to come up to me and want to pray for me and I'm going to have to be like, okay, fine even though I'm like, what? no, that wasn't what I was saying that for. <laughs> like I want to be open to God moving because I want to be devoted. But sometimes devotion costs. And a lot of time it costs my, re- my my preconceived notions, and it costs me being willing to be surprised by Jesus again. Almost every time Luke writes about miracle signs and wonders, he records that they had awe and they were amazed. And I guess the question that I'm asking before we begin, how do we make a great community that would be attractive to others? It's when was the last time that God amazed us or brought awe to us? When was the last time that we looked at Jesus and saw something new or brighter or stronger or better than we had experienced before as the worship team comes up to lead us in a response i want to invite us to be willing to be devoted not because life is easy but precisely because it's challenging I want to invite us to have a refocused picture of community, not that's perfect, but that's becoming something that God designed. I want to invite us to lean into both the delight and the discipline of devotion. And I want us to respond in a way that won't only matter in this moment, but will matter for those that aren't here yet. The beautiful part of grace is that it's too big to fit in any of our pockets alone. That we get to experience Jesus so that others might know him. So in a sense, how we worship and respond tonight can and will and should have effects in the following semesters. Because God is too big and bright to do it only for you. He wants to do it for you and your friends and your family. Why don't you stand with me as you're able? I want to pray. I want to open these altars. I cannot make any guarantees about what will happen when you come to the altar, except that you will have the opportunity to trust in Jesus again, and he is glorified when we trust in him. And even when it feels like he's not moving or working or answering in the ways that we would want hope or plan, he is doing something in our lives. I want to hope and trust and risk for my own story, for the story of my family, and for the story of my students. I don't want my experience to be the limit of what God could do. So Jesus, I pray, would you give us courage to say yes to you again? Would we have courage to say yes to you in an area where we might have experienced disappointment or disillusionment? Jesus, meet us. And as many take this step to come to a place where things can die so that others would live, would we be reminded of your abundant life and grace? And Jesus, would you do what only you can do? In your name we pray. Amen. The altars are open.
0: Lord, we thank you for your presence here tonight. God, we believe that you're in this room, Lord, that you are moving and speaking. God, that you're answering prayers, Lord, that you are bringing hope, Lord, not just what you have done and what we can hope in because of what your son did on the cross, but Lord, how you are actively moving. Lord, we thank you for... Your spirit, Lord, um, we're thankful that you come and you dwell among your people. Um, And Lord, tonight we have declared many things about you, God, that you are awesome, Lord, that you are uh, incomparable, God, that there is no one like you, Lord, that you are powerful, that you are mighty, God, that you are the God who paid it all for each one of us in this room. Um, And Lord, tonight we uh, just ask that you would come, that your spirit would do the work that only you can do. Lord, and we pray that specifically, Lord, you would refocus our hearts, God, that you would center our lives, God, that we would have a devotion. Lord, um, I pray that even tonight as we leave this room and this weekend, as we continue together, I pray that devotion would grow. Lord, I pray that we would experience and encounter you and your spirit in new ways. Lord, that you Yeah, we believe that you know exactly what we need, Lord, that you know um, exactly what we need to be reminded of, Lord, and so we invite your spirit to come and do it. Lord, I pray that you uh, would just be honored in our praise tonight, God. uh, We pray that throughout this weekend, Lord, that you would continue to meet us in this room just as you have tonight. So Lord, we love you. We stand in awe of you as we sang over and over again tonight, Lord, that you are so worthy of devotion and praise and awe. And we give it all to you tonight. To your glorious and wonderful and powerful name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.